0: Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, with a focus on verses 1 through 2 and 7 through 13. The point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Verse 7, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord." This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete is aging, will soon disappear. This is the word of the Lord.
1: For the past several months now, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, and in this passage, the author actually gets right to the point. He actually says, the point of what we're saying is this. Now, if you've been to Metro at least once then you've definitely heard a preacher or presider, somebody talking about the differences between Christianity and religion because there is, there really is a difference. The fact is that to be a Christian is to move away from being religious. That's very, very interesting. There are three points we're going to talk about today. One, the end of religion. Two, the beginning of a new relationship. And thirdly, how do you apply that? The end of religion, the beginning of a new relationship, and lastly, how does that work in us? How do do we apply that? First, we're going to look at the end of religion. This is chapter 8. We're looking at the first two verses. What's the point that the author is trying to make? He says, We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne uh, of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary. The true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. There are two things here that are just absolutely remarkable here. And it sets Jesus' priesthood, him being a high priest, apart from any other priest, any other priesthood. First, we notice that Jesus Christ is the high priest who sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The right hand of the throne is a place, is a position of executive authority, like the prime minister, like the king. So, really, what the author is saying here is that Jesus Christ is the high priest who is king. It means that what is a king? A king is just. That means you can trust him. What is a king? It means a king restores order. That means we can trust him, we can rely on him. That what is a king? It means that a king is in control. We, we, the word sovereignty, he is the ruler. That means there's no need to fear. No matter what our circumstances, the Hebrews that were suffering, the Hebrews They were persecuted. He says, you don't need to fear. It's not like you're not in control. It's not like God is not in control. God is present. He is there. He is in control. Do not be afraid. You can be confident. Absolutely remarkable. But the text also says that Jesus Christ is the high priest who sat down. He's seated. And we're going to spend a little bit more time on this one. No priest, no priest in the Old Testament ever sat down. After his work. Very important. It's actually the key point. If you think about this, all religions believe in some form of spiritual power, some, por- some form of spiritual reality, an ultimate reality that's at work in the world. And all religions believe that a gap exists between people here on earth, humankind, and that spiritual reality, that ultimate reality. So we all believe that there's some sort of power, and we all believe that there's a gap that exists between man and this power, this reality, and that that gap has to be bridged in some ways. It's why every culture had some form of temple. Every culture had some form of rituals and ceremonies and priests and sacrifices and teachings and laws. And all those laws, there's this great emphasis. There's this great emphasis on living right, doing good, Good works, rituals, anything that can bridge this gap between man and the spiritual reality. Every religion teaches about some form of gap. Something has to be overcome. Something has to be bridged. Now, you may say, well, that was then. That was a long time ago. Today, we're a modern society. Today, we believe in empiricism. Everything has to have a reason. There has to be a scientific explanation for everything. So we don't need religion anymore. There's no need for religion. There's no need for God. Did you know that scholars in the past, they predicted a society that our society would eventually rid ourselves of the need for God? That religion would eventually just fade away because as science, as we come to discover the depths of the world more, the need for God would decrease the need for religion will decrease. It will fade away as a result. But the reality, did you know this? The reality is that not only is religion across the board growing in the world, but Christianity itself is strengthening. Christianity is strengthening. Particularly in the world of academy, in the academic world. Particularly among scholars. Did you know that? If you think about why that is, you know, after the period of the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment period, the onset of German philosophies, you know, you're looking at the mid to late 1800s going on now into the modern times. We call this the postmodern world. Now these German philosophers, these these, uh, old world philosophers, they believed that religion was really just a power play all of our enlightenment scholars they believed they were trying to do away with the concept of an absolute truth that there are no absolutes in the world there's no real everything is relative that's what the scholars wanted to teach lots of scholars today are coming to grips with the fact that even those statements are absolutes that we can't rely on even those statements that those statements are just as exclusive that you can't explain away the notion of god you can't explain away the, ocean, the notion of ultimate reality. That you have to accept that there is, at the least, a possibility of absolute truth, an objective reality. And when you do that, when you start to accept that, you start to see the gap. You start to see the gap between us and God. The solution is not to rid the world of religion. Yes, wars are fought over religion. Uh, religion is the subject of a lot of strife, a lot of suffering in the world. Now, it's not the cause of a lot of suffering, but it's definitely the subject of a lot of the suffering. But if you rid yourself of religion, the fact is, look at your classrooms. You know, look at your having lunch with your coworkers. Look at your offices. Look at your, look at your neighbor, right? If you try to rid yourselves of, of the strife if you, by, by getting rid of religion, Right? Is that going to rid yourself completely of oppression? Is that, is that going to rid the world of poverty? Is that going to rid the world of, of violence? It's actually not going to rid the world of any of these things. Nope, not rid the world of persecution. It's actually going to increase violence. It's going to increase persecution, increase oppression. What can you do? The author of Hebrews says you've got to look to Jesus Christ. The whole theme of Hebrews is look to Christ because he didn't come to just make religion better he didn't come to enhance religion he actually came to do away with religion he didn't come to start a new religion he came to end religion altogether because he is the high priest and because he's king now what's a king a king represents a king represents god to the people and so he enforces laws what's a priest a priest, represents, a priest represents the people to God. He mediates on behalf of the people. He atones through sacrifice for the failures of the people to obey God's law. So you have a king, on one hand, who represents laws to the people, right, who enforces the law to the people, who brings the law to the people. On the other hand, you have the high priest who brings sacrifices because the people disobey the law. But you never saw, with the exception of Melchizedek, we learned about Melchizedek several weeks ago, with the exception of that one mysterious figure, you never saw a king who is a priest. You never saw a priest who is a king. Uh, Jesus Christ is unlike all other priests. He's unlike all other kings. Why? Because what he says is, I don't just point, I don't just foreshadow the ultimate reality that's to come. I am that reality. That's what he says. In your call to worship, you have Colossians 1. The Apostle Paul says, once you were alienated from God. That's the gap. There's an alienation. There's a separation. There's a gap. But then he says, but now he has reconciled you by Jesus' body, by Christ's body through death to present you perfect in his sight. Free from accusation. That's what he says. What does that mean? We said that every religion has a way of dealing with this gap. Do this. Offer this. Live like this. Experience this. That's how the bridge, bridging of the gap takes place. Then you're going to be able to bridge the gap between you and the spiritual world. But Jesus Christ says, listen, I am the eternal. I am the ultimate reality. And you can't be that bridge. You can't bridge the gap. The gap is too big. The gap is just too big. And so I am the king and I am the priest. I am the eternal king, the eternal priest. And I came down at infinite cost to myself. I have come to bridge the gap. I have crossed every barrier. Your rituals, your offerings, your sacrifices, they cannot do sufficiently what I've done. So stop trying to be the priest in your life. Stop trying to be a king in your life. Stop trying to always gain control of your life and make everything orderly and make everything right because you will always fail. You will never sufficiently be able to accomplish that. Stop trying to make offer, offerings and sacrifices by living right because you will always fail. You will always fail to be that priest. Look to what I have done, trust what I have done. Your morals are not enough. Your lifestyle, your good record is not enough to afford what only I can afford because I live the life that you couldn't live. I live the life that you should live, but you couldn't live. I've earned that. That's why it says that he's seated. The high priest never sat down after performing his priestly duties. You know why? Because the work was never finished. Every year he would have to do it again. Every year all the time regularly with consistently, consistency with utmost intricacy the priest would have to do his priestly work but Jesus Christ on the cross says what it is finished the work is done the debt is paid the sacrifice is made the bridge has been crossed it's all done the work is done and so he sits down at the right hand at the right hand because he's king And he sat down because he's the perfect priest. At the right hand because he's the perfect king. He sits down because he's the perfect priest. He ended religion once for all. He sat down. You know, there's a word. There's an actual word. If you look in the Bible, if you look at the original languages in the Bible, there's an actual word for religion. It's the word that connotes doing these priestly works, doing the offerings and the sacrifices. There's an actual word for religion, but that word is never, never in the Bible is that word applied to the Christian faith. Even the Bible will attest to that. Do you see that? The gospel is the complete opposite of religion. How do you apply that? Jesus Christ is king. What does that mean? Know him. Trust him believe him, read the word, there is the law, obey him, submit to him, but he's also the great high priest, go to him, freely, anytime, you have ultimate access, pray, seek him, go to him, worship him, do you see that? The second point is, he's the start of a new religion, so on one hand, Jesus Christ ended religion. He's the start of a new relationship. And the relationship, he says two things in this text. And we're going to look at this from verses 7 to 13. He says, one, he brings up the word covenant. And then he says, it's a new covenant. So we're going to start with the word covenant. What is a covenant? Verse 8 says, I will make a new covenant <clears throat> with the house of Israel. I it will not be like a covenant that I made with, my for, with the forefathers. What's a covenant? On one hand, it's not less than a contract. It's binding, just like a contract, it's binding. But on the other hand, you have to think about this. Think about the most intimate relationship in your life. Think about your marital relationships. Think about the relationships that you have with your children. The most intimate relationships that you have, they're actually the most binding. The most intimate relationships are the most binding relationships. A covenant is a relationship that's totally binding on one hand. You literally have a certificate, a birth certificate. You have a marital certificate on one hand, but it's totally intimate on the other hand, completely intimate. Now, we don't think that way today. Today, we think of the word binding and legality. We think of it as cold, and we think of it as formal, too official. The Bible doesn't view that that way. The Bible doesn't view contracts and covenants that way. In fact, the Bible says the more intimate the more delightful, the more, personal, the more personal the relationship is, the more binding it's going to be, the more formal it is, the more legal it is. It's why marriage is a covenant. It's one of the few covenants that anyone holds to in their lives. The greater the intimacy, the more binding it's going to be. The, more, the greater the legality there's going to be, the greater the consequence of breaking that legality. That's why you have a covenant. It goes against human thinking, especially our world today. It goes against human convention, human thinking. Why is that? If you think about this, most relationships today, think about any type of relationship that you have today, most relationships are based on what we call the CBA, the cost-benefit analysis. What that means is when two people enter into a contract, enter into a relationship, it kind of starts off like this. Essentially, the contract says something like this. It could be stated or it could be unstated you know, uh, mainly what we're saying is I'm going to give as long as you give. I'm going to uphold my end of the bargain as long as you uphold your end of the bargain. Another way you could say that is this. I'm going to give as long as I receive. I'm going to give to the extent I receive. You do your part. I'm going to do my part. It's a give-take type of relationship. Now, if you think about your relationship with your landlord, it's definitely like that. If you look at your relationship with your plumber, it's going to be like that if you look at your relationship with your employees or if you are an employee, your relationship with your boss. If you look at sexual relationships without the, constant, the, the institution of marriage, everything is give and take. But if you think about it, <clears throat> any relationship that progresses like that, it starts off way and if you start to progress like that, it ends up always cold. It always ends up cold. It always ends up distant you always, these relationships, even sexual relationships without marriage. Think about it. It's going to start out, give and take. It's always going to end up distant. It's always going to end up insecure. The intimacy actually gets lost over time. You know why? It's because the relationship is based on selfish expectations on either side. And as long as both sides are satisfied, there's fulfillment there. It's fulfilling. But, it's that fulfillment was arrived at without either side giving up any autonomy. It's without any side truly making a binding sacrifice. You're not, you haven't given up your independence. You haven't truly bound yourself. You haven't limited yourself in a way that's binding. And eventually, all these relationships fail because you don't always fulfill the other person. And so to the degree that you can take that, that relationship will stay together. But you don't always fulfill. It's not always going to satisfy you. And the reason why is because we're all broken people. We all have deep-rooted sin in our lives, and as a result, you cannot fully satisfy another person. You're a broken person. How can you fully satisfy another person who's broken? You can't do that. And so there's this endless cycle of selfish expectations that are trying to be met. And you're going to try very, very hard to fulfill that but you're both broken. And so there's a slow erosion of intimacy. Now, what if the relationship, instead of it being based on a CBA, a cost-benefit analysis, what if it begins like this? I will be what I should be for you. Regardless of whether or not you are going to be what you should be for me. The instant you say that, basically what you're saying is this. You're saying, whether or not you succeed or fail on your end of the bargain, I'm going to put your needs ahead of my needs. I'm going to love you and I'm going to be faithful to you regardless of whether or not you love me well, regardless of how my expectations are met. Automatically what you're saying is, that's going to limit me. That's going to limit me. Yes, that's I'm giving up certain freedoms. Yes, that's going to weaken me in some ways because you're going to get hurt. You're going to get damaged. You're going to pay a price at times. What you're going to say is, yes, that, that means that I'm going to slow down. And there are things that I could have done if I wasn't married, right? There, and if you're in, in this type of relationship, it's going to slow you down. It's going to weigh you down at times in some ways. Both sides feel that way. Yes, that other person is terribly flawed. They're broken people. Yes, I'm going to make sacrifices. But I'm going to gain freedoms I never had. I'm going to gain an intimacy I never had. I'm going to gain strengths that I never would have experienced before. Very important because it goes beyond feelings. Feelings, they're always conflicting. Feelings, they always change. If you base your relationship on a set of feelings, no matter how long it persists, that relationship is going to fail because you're broken people and you're still trying to, it's that endless cycle, you see. So it goes beyond feelings. It goes beyond the thrill of any relationship. It, beyond, it goes beyond any comfort in the relationship. When this happens, when you're able to say that, when you're able to commit to that in a binding way, when I say binding, what that means is terrible consequences will happen to me if this contract gets broken. When you're able to commit in that way, will that other person not feel safe to be with you? It opens up a vulnerability that didn't exist before. It opens up, it, you're able to open up in a way that you've never been able to open up before. You're able to trust in a way you've never been able to trust before. You're able to love. And when you trust, and when you love, and when you give in a way you've never been able to give, strengths that you've never been able to discover before, that brings an intimacy that you never had before. A sexual relationship will not give you that by itself. It will actually take away from that. You are damaging that. Do you see that? Without marriage. You see that? Now, this goes against natural convention. I said, hey, this goes against human convention. Why? If you think about it, natural selection, evolution goes against that. Altogether. Because the very heart of natural selection and evolution is violence. It's the stronger domineering over the weak, stepping over the weak to get ahead. That's natural selection. That's evolution. And you're going to have to explain then why mothers take care of sicker children than they do the healthy children. Why do they give and sacrifice? There are families in our midst. There are couples and families in our midst, and you yourself may someday experience a child that is so weak. Without you present, every moment of the day, they cannot survive. Why do we do that? Because natural selection goes against that. Evolution goes against that. Why do we do that? Why do we love? Why do we love our spouses? When they're sick, we're sick. When they're hurting, we are hurting. It's not like the sickness came on you. It's not like the damage, the emotional damage fell on you. But when they're hurting, you are hurting. You're getting weaker. You're sacrificing. You're giving. And yet, you're experiencing an intimacy and a love. You can't help but do that. It's not like something you don't do. You know, you don't do it that way. You love to do that. Does that not garner trust and vulnerability and an openness? You develop only to the degree that you're willing to give up individual freedoms can you know the freedom of an organic relationship that is bound contractually. Do you see that? Friends, this isn't just marriage. Some, some of you guys, you're thinking about joining a community group. Now, there are people in this church that have been damaged by other churches in the past, and as a result, they refuse to go to community groups, and they're, con- they're thinking about the possibility of stepping into that again. Some of you are thinking about joining a community group. Some of you are in community groups, and you're just not satisfied. You're just not happy. You're, you're, you, you had certain expectations you had. And you're in one and you're just not satisfied. Now, you have to ask yourself, is this based of a CBA? Are you thinking cost-benefit, give-take, or is it covenantal? You know what covenantal is? That's a church. Choosing to bind yourself in a way that is going to take sacrifice. And if you haven't given up your independence, if you haven't given up your autonomy, if you haven't given up to the point where it hurts, by the way, that's the meaning of the tithe, giving till it hurts. You know, a lot of people say it means 10%. You know why 10%? First of all, the Bible doesn't specifically always say 10%. Sometimes it's a widow's penny. You know, sometimes it it doesn't, the amount is not really the focus in the Bible. It's giving till it hurts. You know why? Because you've chosen to bind yourself. You've chosen to bind yourself. That makes you weaker because you love. It's a love-binding contract. If you haven't sacrificed your privacy, that's what accountability is. If you haven't sacrificed your space or your time, that's your comfort. If you haven't sacrificed your finances, that's what the tithe is. When you haven't loved in a binding way to care and to, for the, those who are hurting, when they're broken, I'm broken. When they're sick, I'm sick. When they're in need, I'm, when they lose, I've lost. If you haven't done that, well, it explains the dissatisfaction. You see. Only to the degree that you've committed will you find and experience greater dimensions of intimacy and love. Uh, I don't like to tell personal stories a lot at the pulpit because the emphasis a lot of times falls on the preacher. I'll just tell you a quick story. When I first came to Philadelphia, I, came, I grew up in Philadelphia. When I came to Philadelphia, I had no friends. It was a new city for me. I hadn't been in the city in 11 years, and so it was a whole new city. All I had was my family. My most intimate relationship was, was my family, who I've always been close with, right? But I didn't have real friends. And so I had two options. I can go and, and I, look, I checked out different churches. I ended up settling at one church for seven years. It was supposed to be a one year, it was supposed to be a one-year uh, term. I was there for seven years. And uh, one thing I learned there is that had I just sat back and said, you know what, I'm going to figure out what these churches can offer me, what this community group can offer me, what these people can offer me, you can easily just nitpick everything that's wrong with every community, and you'll never settle down. You'll never commit. Guys, I'm telling you, as a new person back then, it's when you said, you know what, I'm looking at this wrong. I'm just going to pour myself out. I'm just going to choose a group of people, and I'm just going to pour myself out. And you know what? They're going to hurt you. And you know what? They're going to leave sometimes. Sometimes they move away, and you didn't expect that. Sometimes they depart for whatever reason. They get married, and they're gone. And you've invested all this time and resource and energy in these people. You know what? It didn't actually, going in with that mentality, it didn't decrease the level of my relationships and intimacy with people. It actually increased my relationships and the depth of relationships that i have with people do you see that it's an irony you have to experience it you have to give we talked about that's a covenant it's a lasting binding contract to find greater intimacy and dimensions of love now God doesn't say it's just a covenant. He says it's a new covenant. That's what the author points to here. God talks about the old covenant that he had with Israel, verse 9. He says, uh, basically he 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 brings up this old covenant with the house that he had, the house of Israel. And it felt very religious. Now, this old covenant, it was provisional. This old covenant, it was temporary. It was a foreshadowing. It was a pointing. So it actually pointed to the new covenant. So it, it really wasn't religious. That's not the way it was written. But in a complicated way, because of all these nuances, it became reduced to religiosity, and in verse 9, God says, you did not remain faithful to my covenant, and so I turned away from you. That's what he says. That sounds like religion. Basically, what he's saying is, this was a, is a relationship, and it's some, it stopped being a relationship. Keep in mind, God never turned his, himself away. He never turned himself away. He never uh, went departed from us, He's, he's always been faithful to his people. If you look at the history of the Old Testament, God has always been faithful to his people, all the way into the New Testament. So when he says, oh, I'm turning my face away, I'm turning away from you, really what he's saying is, you know, your sin, you're unfaithful. You have departed, you have broken our contract. And as a result, there's a gap. There is this distance from us between us. It sounds religious. It sounds like religion when he says that, but remember, God is referring to a relationship that he has with his people, a covenant relationship that he has with the people. And what he's saying is, you have broken the covenant. You walked away. You have turned this thing that is so organic, this intimacy that is desired, you have made it into a conditional relationship between us. And on top of that, not only have you made it conditional, you broke it. You were unfaithful to it. So it feels like a contract. That's not what I'm about. It feels like a contract. How does this play out? In our lives, how does that play out? Well, you come to church, you pray, you read the Bible, you join a community group, but what are you saying? I've done these things, I'm good. And I'm committed to do these good things as long as God hears me, as long as he provides for me, as long as he does, as long as he fulfills his end of the bargain. And, and <clears throat> you know, in other words, what you're saying is I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do as long as you do what you're supposed to do. Now we assume that's what how God views our relationship. But that's actually not how God views, how God views our relationship with Him. The old covenant, right? If he, it, that's, that's not even how He views the law, the old covenant. But regardless, the new covenant is different. If you look at the end of verses 10 to 12, he says, For I will forgive your wickedness. I will remember your sins no more. Completely different. The old covenant, God sees our sin and in a way, that creates a distance and he has to turn away. Otherwise, we'd be destroyed. To maintain that relationship, there has to be a mediator. And so he sees our sin, but he has to turn himself away. But the new covenant, what he's saying is that he's going to see us right? He's going to see us, and he's going to turn away from our sin. In the old covenant, he sees our sin has to turn away from us. The new covenant, he says, I'm going to see us. I'm going to see us. He sees us. He's going to turn away from our sin. What he's saying is, in that sense, the old covenant, it lacked the intimacy. We've turned it into something so conditional, it lacked intimacy. But the new covenant, he says, is Unconditional. And so when it's unconditional, what he's saying is now you can experience love that can be expressed with greater freedom. What God is saying is that I, this new covenant, I'm going to sacrifice my autonomy. I'm going to sacrifice my freedom. I'm going to sacrifice my wants, so to speak. I'm going to sacrifice these things. I have to adjust. I have to make a way. So that the love, the intimate relationship that we have can grow more intimate. We can experience greater dimensions of intimacy. It's when you say, you know, the best marriages are the ones that say, your sin is greater than I ever imagined. I mean, I know you're a sinner, but your sin is greater than I ever imagined. And yet, I want my love to be greater than you ever dreamed. Does that sound familiar? Your sin is greater than you could ever imagine, but... God's grace is greater than you could ever dream. The greatest relationships, the most intimate relationships are expressed that way. I'm going to be faithful no matter what. Jesus Christ, he saw us. He saw our sin. And he said, they can't come to me. There's a gap. They can't come to me. So I have to go to them. They can't adjust to fulfill my expectations. The law. And so I have to adjust. I will go down. I will fulfill the law. I will make a way. They can't bridge the gap that leads to God, that leads to me, intimacy with me. I have to bridge the gap. I will go down. I will fulfill. I will make a way. I will adjust. And so he did. He crossed every barrier, every barrier. He crossed from eternity into time. He crossed from wealth, ultimate wealth, He sacrificed that wealth. He became poor. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through him, you in his poverty may be rich. You see, he crossed that bridge. He crossed that gap. He crossed from holiness 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He bridged the gap. I will be faithful no matter what. I will love you no matter what. No matter the cost, I will pay it. No matter the price, I will pay it. What's the price? The father did turn his face away, but not from us. The Father should have turned his face away from us. That's the old covenant. We broke the law. But for the new covenant to be established, all part of God's design, this is all part of God's design from the Old Testament to now, all the way from Genesis through Revelation. This is all part of his history, his story of redemption. So really, you have old covenant, new covenant. It's really one covenant. covenant. On the cross, Jesus Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father turned his face away but he didn't turn it away from us he turned to us he turned away from Christ turned to us do you see that that's verse 9 fulfilled it had to be fulfilled by Christ sin takes us to the grave and God is just God is just that's why you can always trust God when God says I am just here is the law he will fulfill every letter of that law you can trust him you can take him at his word sin had to be paid for it is grave God is a God of promise. He will never go back on his word. It's why he's trustworthy. It's why he's good. There is a price to sin. It had to be paid. Jesus Christ said, "I will pay it." Over and over, "I will pay it." On the cross when he says, "It is finished," it's a transactional term what businessmen who enter into a contract use that word to tell us, "Die." It is it is finished. It's actually, "It is paid." The debt is paid. He kept the covenant. Perfectly obedient, intimate with the Father. I and the Father are one. Perfect intimacy. Perfect intimacy, and yet on the cross, my God, my God. The only time in the Scriptures, the only time in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't refer to God as his Father. What he's saying is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I am on the cross and I am suffering. God has turned his face away from me. So what he's really saying is, I've lost intimacy. Why? So you could gain the intimacy of God. I've lost the love of the Father. Why? So you could have the love of the Father. The Father chose to reject the Son. Why? So that he can choose to forget our sins. It's not like God has a bad memory. How many times in the Old Testament do you see, remember my sins no more, forget my sins? Why? Are we saying, God, you're old, have a bad memory? That's not what we're saying. God has chosen to forget because he has chosen to reject his Son. He paid the price. It's why we can trust God. We can trust the Father. Jeremiah 31: "I have loved you with an everlasting love. You can trust that. And if you trust that, would you not be open to Him? Would you not run to him? Would you not go to Him? When you're weak, would you not pray? When you're mourning, before you call anyone? Would you not go to the Father? Would you not plead? If you're anxious, would you not trust? Would you not open up? Would you not make yourself weak? Would you not be vulnerable? The relationship opens up for greater dimensions of love and intimacy to be expressed. What else is going to restore you? By you working harder? By you trying harder? What else is going to restore you? So when you work harder, does that bring greater intimacy between you and your boss? Does he say, I've loved you with an everlasting love because you work harder and you succeed because when you fail and we all fail, we all have a day. We're broken. No matter how good you are at what you do, it's broken. You will fail. There will come a time you will fail. Will your boss still look at you and say, because of all of your past and all that you've done, I will love you with an everlasting love? Then why do you work so hard? You know, anxiety is work. When you're anxious, you're working. Because if I can just get my arms wrapped around it mentally, if I can just understand this thoroughly, all the different dimensions, it will help to cure my anxieties, cure my worries. It's all You're still trying to be king and priest. Do you see that? You're still trying to do that. You're still trying to be king. You're still trying to grab control. And so when you feel guilty and you're in shame or when you fail, you start to pay the price. You say, you know what? I'm going to work myself back up to God's favor. Well, it starts with God, but I'm going to work myself up to my boss's favor or my wife's favor or my children's favor. You're trying to be the priest. Will that sufficiently absolve you, restore you? Those relationships become even more conditional. And if that's the way you view God, then God will perpetually owe you. You will always view God as a boss so that when you succeed, he owes you. He owes you a bonus, a promotion. Do you see that? What's going to bring intimacy? It's when God says, I have chosen to bind myself to you so that when I win, you win. When I die, you died when I rise again, you've risen with me. That's called union. Union with Christ. Union. It's more, it's, the more binding a covenant is, the more intimate it's going to be. That means that you choosing to be intimate with God, you're going to get rid of certain freedoms freedoms that you thought were such great freedoms i'm telling you right now okay for some of you who are younger than me all of you are younger than me when, when you look at yourself you're going to say yeah you know i have certain freedoms it's really hard for me to let this go i really want to let this go you know i have freedoms and, you know i want to do these things i don't want to give these things up but the thing is 10 years from now you're going to look back at those freedoms and you're going to say this that was a joke that was nothing if anything that was taxing that's what you're going to say Ten years from then, you're gonna look at yourself and you're going to say, "Well, I, want I have all these freedoms because I've got the money and I go, not going to buy a house." And you're gonna say all this. Ten years later, you're gonna look at those freedoms and you're gonna say, "Those weren't freedoms. Those weren't freedoms, and it never, it definitely doesn't bring joy." What's gonna give you freedom? It's when you've chosen to say, "When you hurt, I hurt." Burden me with the things that burden you, Father. Endow me with the things that you want to be endowed with. Let me love you. Because God never fails, so he isn't broken. He's always perfect. There's no reason not to love. There's no reason not to delight in him, you see? That takes away the contract. The contract, those are the consequences we experience when anything good is broken, you see? It's the intimacy. It will change you. It will shape you. You're going to be able to open up freely, be weak, trust. Intimacy will grow by the day. Now, just like last week, uh, you know, we're in this third point. How do you apply it? Uh, I'm just going to breeze through this very quickly. All right? I'm going to breeze through this very, very quickly. So uh, some of you are taking notes. Uh, Brace yourselves. (laughs) I'm just going to go very quick, okay? Uh, There are many ways that we can apply this. Um, I'm going I'm to point out just three that come right out of this text. Okay, first, verse 10. Uh, community. He says, they will be my people. I will be their God. They will be my people. When God's grace brings, in, brings you into union with Christ, he's going to bring you into union with others. And you become not a loose collection of people. You become a people you become a people, you become a kingdom. It makes you part of a new community. It's a new relationship that breeds a new community, a new people. Remember, Jesus Christ is not just a priest, but he's a king. So it's a new world, a new kingdom. And because God is committed to us, even if we're not the way we should be, you can't just walk into a church and say, well, I'm going to come as long as it meets my needs. I'm going to make friends as long as they meet my needs. And if they don't meet my needs, I'm going to go somewhere else. If I don't feel like it, I'm not going to go. That's religion, you see. That's religion. You are actually being religious when you do that. The new covenant says we are a covenantal people. That means I want to stay home, guys. You don't think I like football? I have season tickets to the Eagles game. I want to. I I I don't want to miss a game. Okay, but I'm a pastor. I gotta stay here, and we have the unfortunate, uh, uh, you know, uh, circumstance of starting at 11 o'clock. That means I miss the first half of every Eagles game, and then I gotta go out with you. So that means I have to. I, I miss every game. I miss every game. A Thursday night game, I'll go. You know, something like that, right? You think that that isn't worth it? It opens up greater intimacy greater possibility. Those sacrifices, remember, 10 years from now, you look at that, they're not even sacrifices. You see that? 10 years ago, that was a sacrifice. It was a big sacrifice. You have to enter in and say, this church is flawed. These people are flawed. That person next to you, if you haven't judged them already, if if you're intimate with this church enough, the temptation to judge them will be there someday, right? Everyone is flawed, including myself. Everyone in it, including myself. But you know what? If you promise, I will be true to you, regardless. See what that does to shape your relationships with people here. See what that does. Let that shape your community, that church. I spent a lot of time on this. I really got to go fast. Number two, delight. Okay, we talked about community. Number two, delight. Verse 11, they will all know me. They will no longer, you don't need a teacher that's going to explain. They will all know me. When you really delight in someone, it's going to shape your view of things. You know why? If you ever delighted in somebody, if you have, you're going to marry that person. If you've delighted in them, you know what's going to happen? They're going to shape your view. You know why? It's not because things are lovey-dovey all the time. They're going to argue with you. They're going to fight with you. They're going to challenge you. Things aren't always rosy. Sometimes you're going to suffer. But that intimacy that comes in the midst of arguing and challenging and fighting, that interaction, again, The love expresses itself in different dimensions. They're going to grab you by the collar, and they're going to say, will you look at yourself? And you don't like that, but you can't leave. And when you view your relationship with God in that same way, the Bible speaks to you in a certain way. It's going to challenge your lifestyle. It's going to challenge your behavior, your, your practices, and you know what? It will not leave you alone. That means intimacy is growing, you see. We say, oh, you're such a nag. That intimacy is going to grow. You have to delight in that. It's going to give life to you. It's going to shape you in a way. It's for you. It's going to give life to you. Religion is mechanical. The gospel is very, very organic. There's a delight. Religion, there's no delight. You can come, do all these things, and if you haven't taken delight in the Father today, you are just being religious. Jesus Christ offers up the opportunity for an organic relationship with you. You can delight in the Father. You ever pray with delight, even in suffering? That's what the author is telling the Hebrews to do. Lastly, inclusion. So we talked about community, delight, inclusion. He says, from the least of them to the greatest. Jesus Christ crossed every bridge, every barrier, even death, to be intimate with you. When you entered into the temple in the old days, in the ancient times, there were barriers everywhere. The outer court was for the Gentiles. The inner court was for the Jews. Uh, Women were considered outside. Men were considered inside. If you were sick, you couldn't even enter into the temple. You had to be pure. You had to be purified, right? So there were cleansing rituals and duties in order to actually even enter into the temple. Barriers were everywhere. What that means is this. A religious person will never be able to mix it up with someone who's different than them. That's a problem for the church because everyone here is different from each other. Right? A religious person will say, I, will ne- I can never conceive myself being friends with that person. That's what creates an ingrown community. If you're doing that in your community group, you're going to die in that community. You're going you're to wither in that community group. And you're going to kill that community group. If you do that in the church, if that's how you view the church... This community around us will wither. The gospel is the greatest hope for this community. The greatest hope for this community. It is not your politics. It is not your intelligence. You're all very smart people. It is not even your wealth. You think your money is enough to solve the problems in this community? It is not. We give because we love. Inclusion. I'm going to become weaker. That's what we're committing to. If you pride yourself in your looks, for instance, you're going to gravitate only to people who are good-looking and popular, right? Because it's going to feed your need, right, to be looked well upon. If you pride yourself in your reputation, you're only going to be around people who can increase your stature, right? You're going to despise, then, people who are unattractive. You're going to despise people, actually, who, who if you pride yourself in your upbringing, in your religious or cultural or, or church upbringing, for instance, um, your religious upbringing, you're going to despise people who say what? You know what? You're wrong. People who challenge you. People who have different theological views. People who challenge your views, right? People who challenge your lifestyle. Maybe they have different lifestyles than you. That Why does religion lead to war? That's the reason why it leads to war it's always exclusive in that way. It leads to war because there's always a superior trying to dominate the, the inferior. And, and that's always going to lead to some form of oppression. But if you're saved by grace, you know God didn't, dis- God didn't save you because of your looks. God saved you despite them. doesn't matter how pretty you are. God saved you despite your good-looking qualities. If you The gospel has saved you. If you've been saved by the grace of God alone, you didn't deserve it. And they didn't deserve it. So you're on the same plane. That allows for love. Intimacy expressed in greater dimensions. From the least, verse 11, from the least to the greatest. No difference. This is the end of bigotry. This is the end of chauvinism. This is the end of discrimination, right? It's not just the end of chauvinism. It's the end of feminism too, the way we view feminism today. Biblical feminism is much more, it's much more deep. You understand? You see that? Friends, we're going to come to the table. The very nature of us taking of the bread and the wine, the very nature of us taking of the bread and the juice, it's always saying we're all broken and Jesus Christ was broken for us. We we all deserved our blood to be spilled, and yet it was his blood that was spilled for us. When you come to the table, on one hand, we come with confidence because it's over. It's finished. That's why we can come. We're invited to come. But on the other hand, we come broken. We come broken. This is who we are. The gospel gives us a tremendous humility and a tremendous confidence. And that opens up possibilities for a tremendous intimacy and delight with God. We can practice that today. Let's pray.